What is up? Welcome to episode 7 of the Moons Podcast. On this episode, I want to talk about love and the different attachment styles and unconscious patterns that we bring into our romantic relationships. As a collective, we all vary in what we desire when it comes to the specifics of what we want in a relationship. But that desire for intimacy and closeness to other human beings is universally wired into us. Yet the way in which we handle that intimacy will be shaped and altered throughout our lives. And it was uniquely calibrated early on from the relationship we had with our parents that set the foundation for how we connect to others. But as love is a highly charged emotion, it can leave in its wake scars that alter how we act the next time we get close to someone. And our protective mechanisms create a form of love language that characterizes how we handle intimacy with our partner, as well as which partners are viable for us and which are not. I've spent most of my life single, with large portions of that time not only avoiding dating, but avoiding girls altogether. And looking back, I did it mainly out of a fear of rejection. I did not love or know myself, so I'd hand over my own self-worth to others, leaving my value as a human being up to whether a potential partner would be attracted to me or not, which placed an ungodly amount of pressure on every interaction that I had with the alien species known as females. As talking to a girl is easy, but talking to the judge of your entire worth as a person is terrifying. So to avoid that nightmare, I just stayed away from women altogether. I mean, nobody can reject you if you don't shoot your shot, right? But all that did was place me in a spiral, continually making me more and more afraid. Where any time I gave in to fear and avoided saying hi or interacting with someone, the fear only got worse, and I felt like I got weaker. Through it all, though, I never turned against women like some men do. I idolized them. I thought of them as these perfected creatures that existed on a higher plane than I did. And my eventual addiction to porn made it so that, for a long time, the only close exposure to women I had was a fabricated representation of them. Or they existed in fantasy. Imagine scenarios where I could pretend to be in a relationship with these mythical figures which only further exemplified that deification of them, and made me turn against myself. As in those fantasies, the only way I would be able to be with them was if I was perfect, if I was successful and rich, or if I was jacked and enlightened, if I was anything other than who I was, who I believed myself to be. As why would a perfected being want to be with someone who wasn't also perfect? And this insecurity in the realm of intimacy and dating was likely tied to my pre-existing issues with perfection that I talked about in episode 6. It took a long time for me to begin to work through these fears, and begin to see my confidence come back. And even then, I still have them flare up occasionally when I get tired or anxious. But by observing myself constantly and journaling about my experiences, I've been able to identify these patterns and work through some of them. And now that I have overcome a lot of these internal obstacles, it has allowed me to point my attention externally, to be able to be more observant of the unconscious patterns in the people that I am dating. Which is hard to see when you are too busy worrying about how you are being perceived, or wondering if the person in front of you is noticing the insecurity that you are attempting to hide. Another big help for me was researching into the psychology behind lust and romantic bonding in podcasts and books. 
which labeled some of these key behaviors so that I could have a more refined framework from which to view these interactions. As a lot of the time, we may know on some level that we have these tendencies or insecurities, but we aren't able to fully identify or understand them until we hear someone else talk about their similar experiences, which gives them a little bit more of a validity in our minds or until we are presented with a cohesive layout for us to apply to our situation, which gives it a lot more of a structure and makes it a lot easier to understand. One of the best sources I found was a book on adult attachment simply titled Attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller. In the book, they lay out three basic attachment styles that we tend to fall into, which are anxious, avoidant, or secure. Usually people have one that is their primary, but can have each of them take over under varying circumstances. In my life, I have seen one or two present in different relationships, as well as all three within the same relationship, although the authors say that it is rare to have all three. But I've found that they can blend together depending on the partner I am interacting with, as well as where I am at in life at that moment. They are laid out with anxious on one end, having a strong pull towards connection and partnership with avoidant on the other end, being more closed off and focused on individuality, but with fear playing a strong role in both of them. And finally, with secure sitting in the middle between the two extremes. A secure person is a person who knows who they are and is comfortable in their own skin. However, if you have listened to my previous episodes, you'll know it's more of a matter of knowing who you are as best as you can at this point in time. As since the only constant in life is change, we have to continually update our frames of perception and work through the new adaptations of our ego. Compared to secure, the other two stand as contrasts, as they are insecure attachment styles. People who aren't fully comfortable in their own skin, and whose operating system lies mostly in the realm of their ego and not in their soul, with a large amount of fear controlling their actions. If you do not love who you are and aren't open and accepting of your flaws as well as affirmed and confident in your strengths, then you are going to be unaligned in your psyche, which means that there is likely a lot of repression of parts of yourself, leading you to act largely in ways that are unconscious. The more that you are not in control of your own internal state, the further you will sway to the extremes of insecure attachment, and the more that you will seek to control your partner and your external environment. As I mentioned in the last episode, this desire to control usually comes from a place of fear, which cuts off our empathy and puts us more into a destructively selfish ego state. It's worth noting that these styles of insecure attachment in romantic relationships can come up in people who are considered secure in other areas of life, such as their job or career. But when they enter into a relationship with someone, that perceived strength begins to falter due to the lack of security that they have when relating to another person intimately. So it really depends on what your strengths are as well as what traumas you have brought in with you from your past. I'll mention before I begin delving into this deeper that the longest relationships I have had were just over a year long. But I have had a number of flings that lasted a few months at a time with long periods of being single in between them. So there will be a lot of things that I can't and thus won't speak to that comes out of a long-term relationship, as I am very much still in the process of learning the dynamics of romantic partnerships. But each one of my past dances carried with it its own collection of life lessons, which have helped me to gain a lot of perspective on how we relate to one another in the vulnerable landscape of romance. 
When I was a young, post-pubescent lad, I never really had a girlfriend. All the way up until my grade 12 year, I was mostly single besides those random little girlfriends in junior high, where you asked them to be your girlfriend, which meant you could hold hands, hang out at lunch, and hopefully make out. Even though girls were a large focus, I spent most of my time hanging out with my buddies, as that was the camaraderie that I valued at that point in my life. And most of my closest friends all did the same thing too, which worked out great for me. I also definitely felt that I had many potential girls to choose from and didn't want to tie myself down to just one. So in short, I was a bit of a whore. Although I was not the most successful whore and still had lots of insecurities and fears of putting myself out there with girls unless I had some liquid confidence in me. It's interesting in looking back to see how I would have a blend of secure and anxious energy as I pursued them, usually switching to more secure once I saw enough to confirm to myself that I was going to score. But then once things started to progress towards a relationship, I would lose interest and move on really fast. Which in part was probably a bit of an avoidance of that close intimacy and commitment. But I also think that I more just wanted the rush of proving to myself that I could do it, and then the ego pump from telling my buddies that I slept with her. But also, those first few weeks to months of a relationship are, at least in my experience, one of the most, if not the most, enjoyable part. As there's this rush that comes from when you get to know someone more deeply and experience the novelty of the new connection together. Each connection carrying with it its own unique frequency, which accentuates different parts of my personality that maybe the previous partner I had didn't. So it could be that I just wanted to recreate that experience over and over again. But it's also very probable that I just never met the right person back then. And if I had, I would probably have a very different perspective on things. But I didn't. So here we are. However, a major flaw in my behaviors back then was a lack of awareness and empathy for how my actions affected each of those girls. I didn't know the power and necessity of honest communication back then, so I never shared my emotions nor my intentions, and I never asked them about theirs. But I also never really conceptualized and thought to understand my emotions or really even knew what I wanted. And that lack of communication likely ended up hurting a few people if they wanted to pursue a relationship and saw my initial actions as signs that I felt the same way and then were shocked when I dumped, ghosted, or cheated on them. I lived mostly through my ego, so although I would feel guilty at times for being a bit of a scumbag, I only really cared about myself. So if I got what I wanted, then that was all that mattered. And if I was the one dumping them, then I wouldn't have to be dumped. And then my friends would see me as the dumper and not the dumpy, which is so petty. It's fucking hilarious. All I can do is just shake my head and laugh at Young Moon's obsession with how he was viewed by others. But although it's less cool that I acted that way, at this point, I can't really hold any unrealistic judgments towards myself as I was completely unconscious, just sleepwalking through life as most of us were when we were teenagers. Furthermore, at least for me, no one ever really talked to me about relationships. So I just did what I did and what I saw others doing, never questioning the morality of it all, and never using the powers of self-reflection to see the patterns I was acting out, which would have given me a new perspective and potentially created an alteration in my actions. When I was in the final half of my grade 12 year, I started to pursue this girl named Siobhan, 
I'd had a crush on her for a while, but she seemed a little awkward once I actually started to pursue her more, which I later found out was just her being nervous. But at the time, I took it as her being disinterested, and instead dated another girl named Miranda who I met at a New Year's party. She was a great person, but after the first few months, the same pattern arose, and I got bored and distant. Even though we connected, I was more lustful than anything. During our short fling, I went from being secure in my attachment style to being avoidant, always keeping some kind of distance between us. And that's when I got to go on a school trip to New York for a week, and also on that trip was Siobhan. I even got to sit next to her on the bus ride from the airport to the hotel, and over the course of the week we were there, we got to spend lots of time together, walking through Central Park and the Metropolitan Museum, as well as seeing a couple musicals on Broadway. Even though I was technically still in a relationship, I completely fell in love with her. So on the first day back at school, once we got back, I broke up with Miranda and started dating Siobhan. I don't really even remember what I told her, but knowing myself back then, it was probably a well-crafted collection of half-truths. But the next few months with Siobhan were some of the best in my life. That first experience of love is unlike anything else. To be completely enraptured by someone exactly as they are and have that reciprocated is one of the most beautiful experiences that we can have in this life. Although our time together was limited. At the end of the summer, she was going to be moving to France for a year as an exchange student. The fact that we knew that we only had a few months together probably amplified our emotions for each other, but I wouldn't trade that experience for anything, even though I almost fucked it up. Leading up to our graduation, we all voted as a class as to who would do the toasts to the students, teachers, and parents, and who would be the MCs. I was in the running for all of them, and so was Siobhan. Three of my closest friends ended up getting chosen to do the toasts. Siobhan was the female MC, and my friend Harry was chosen as her partner. And I was devastated. I can't think of many other times my ego had been crushed that badly. I truly thought I was going to be the one chosen, and the thought of getting to do it with her was too good to be true. Which it was. Looking back on it almost 10 years later, I can see how much it hurt me, and how I never really processed it back then, because I didn't know that that was a thing. My family never really talked about anything. We had many struggles, but all of it was kept to ourselves and buried. I mean, I can't fully speak for my siblings, but that's definitely how it was for me. So that's just what I did. I repressed all of that pain and anger and ignored it. And it just festered in my body for weeks leading up to grad. Although I was really good at repressing things, so apart from a few blowouts, I still enjoyed the shit out of my final weeks. But if I were to go back and see myself on a daily basis, I'm sure I could have seen that pain spilling out in my daily life. Alcoholism and addiction have had a big impact on my family, but I have never had an addiction to alcohol, although I love to drink. And I'm one of those people where as soon as I have one, it's extremely difficult for me to stop. And it's really easy for me to get carried away. And on the day of our graduation, a couple days after my 18th birthday, I was slamming back beers and taking shots. It also didn't help that I was wearing a three-piece suit in plus 30 degree weather and seemed to forget what water was. So daddy was sliding down a slippery slope. Siobhan had made plans month before we got together to go to grad with a friend of hers. So she and I were at different events and on different limos. 
and I ended up going with an awesome girl named Emma, who I had had things with in the past, but had asked her not for any other reason than we got along great, and neither of us had dates. But the fact that I wasn't going with Shiv sucked balls, and only added to the previous set of metaphorical balls that I was already sucking from not being chosen as MC. And that's a lot of balls to suck at once. And that repressed pain sure played a role in my drinking that day. By the time we got to the ceremony, I was blackout drunk, which was just peachy, since I was going to be sitting with Siobhan's entire massive family, as well as my own, during the ceremony. A massive family, I may add, that I had not met before. So in the realm of first introductions, that probably wasn't the best one possible. But thanks to the revitalizing powers of roast beef and mashed potatoes, I was able to eat myself to a level of relative sobriety. But I definitely embarrassed myself as well as a lot of people I cared about. Later that night, we were going to our grad party, and I don't remember how I found out, but someone told me that on the limo ride to the ceremony, I made out with some other girl on the limo. Like, what the fuck? In trying to remember it, I could only muster, like, a blurry image of maybe her sitting on my lap, but nothing else. However, when I heard it, part of me knew that it had happened. Naturally, Shiv's friends caught wind of it and told her, and she dumped me in one of the most emotional days of my life. It's such a weird thing to have deeply hurt the person I loved most in the world by doing something that I didn't want to do, and something that I didn't even really remember doing. I've thought a lot about why it happened, why I thought it was a good idea, if there was even thoughts at all. Like, maybe Autopilot Moons thought he could get away with it? I have no idea. At this point, I think it was just pure lust or patterned habits from being a hoe at parties. Maybe it was a complex combination of multiple things or nothing more than being a drunken idiot. My buddies even said it happened so fast that they were all confused as nothing happened before that gave them any indication that we were flirting. But it still happened, and she still left, even though she didn't really want to. But she had told herself that she would never stay with someone who cheated on her, which I had to respect. But the tough part about love is that where there is such heightened positive emotions lies the potential for equally as intense negative emotions. I've had multiple bouts with depression over the years since then, and I've thought lots of times that maybe it would be just easier to end it all. But the only time I was low enough to ever really consider it was in the wake of that breakup. When your world falls apart like that, the pain is unlike anything you've ever experienced before, and to top it all off, it's all your fault? Like, that sucks. That may be worse than being betrayed, because then you have no one to blame. No excuses to lighten the load. It's all on you. I don't really remember the two weeks that follow very well, and I, I'm okay with that. But eventually, I decided to write her a letter, because I'm cute as fuck. But I couldn't bring myself to send it, and actually just reached out to her and asked if she wanted to meet up. We went on a walk together and talked, and she told me that she also wrote me a letter, but never sent it. Which is adorable. After a few hours together, she actually decided to give me another chance, even though we only had a month and a half left together. But again, I enjoyed every last minute of that time with her. 
but eventually it did come to an end, with a final day together where we walked around downtown and had dinner at the spinning restaurant at the top of the Calgary Tower, while a massive fireworks show called Global Fest happened right next to us at the Stampede Grounds, which we had no idea about prior, but was a very tight surprise. Wildly enough too, the man at the table next to us proposed to his girlfriend while we were there. Their relationship was moving on to its next chapter, and ours was coming to a close. We ended it by sitting in a park near her house, laughing, crying, and just holding each other silently, when she told me for the first time that she loved me. I had said it to her a couple months before and didn't get a response, but truly didn't give a fuck because I felt it so strongly. And I knew she felt it too, but when you know you're going to be leaving in a few months to a new country, the idea of falling in love probably isn't exactly in your plans. But that night, when she said that to me, was the first time someone other than my family had ever said that to me. And that moment will forever be etched as clear as day in my memory. I don't think I took a piss for the next couple days after that night because all of the water in my body was being poured out of my eyes. And as I mentioned before in this podcast, it was within the same week that all of my best friends except for one moved away to different parts of Canada, and I completely fell apart. Me and Shiv continued to talk to each other every day for a few months, but slowly it dwindled, she moved on, and I fell deeper into the abyss. During that time, I was fully in an anxious attachment to her, feeling as though I needed her in my life to be able to continue existing. I attached the inner security and confidence I felt when I was with her to her, which does have some validity to it, as when we are in a loving and supportive relationship, our partner actually does regulate our emotions. There have been studies done in the past where they had people experience pain in the form of an electrical shock as well as studies where they were just told they were going to be shocked, which created a stress response. And during these, they tracked their stress responses when they experienced this alone, then while holding the hand of a stranger, and finally while holding the hand of their spouse. And the levels of the stress in their body, as well as the pain, reduced while holding the stranger's hand, and dramatically reduced while holding the hand of their partner with that tolerance to the pain or stress increasing if the couple was in a happy and fulfilling marriage. So there actually is a biological increase in our ability to handle the stresses of life when we are with a partner that we are able to depend on. It also increases our confidence and bravery to be independent in what scientists call the dependency paradox, where being dependent on someone actually increases our ability to be independent. However, this is if it is a healthy dependence coming from a more secure place and that it is not a one-sided dynamic or an extreme anxious attachment. I was very secure in my attachment to Siobhan during our summer together, and during that time I was far more confident, funny, and brave than I had felt before I met her. And I have seen this exact same result happen in almost every single relationship I've been in. Until, of course, I fell out of that security and my behavior shifted to either of the two extremes of an insecure attachment, as it did when she moved away. Since I had not experienced that much passion and intimacy before in my life, I was brought into that state of love for the first time because of her, and felt like I needed her to be around to be able to experience that same feeling of love in my life. 
She unlocked a state inside of me that I didn't know existed, and thus projected that state of internal love onto only her, which then deified her, and in a lot of ways turned me into an addict, experiencing deep withdrawals without having her in my life, which is what I think spawned that deification of women and the rejection of myself that I mentioned at the beginning. I still clung desperately to the hope that we'd get back together when she got back, but that was just never going to happen, as she was going to move away again at the end of the following summer. And she waited until the week before she came back to tell me that she didn't want to reconnect, which sucked balls. But at that point, I had been accepted to a video game modeling school in Vancouver, so I would also be moving. And although I was still not over her, on a Maylon camping trip a couple months before, I met a girl named Kiana. She was the first girl I had actually talked to and connected with in the nine months since Shiv left, and fuck did she save me. I was a shell of who I was before, extremely addicted to weed and consumed by the world of conspiracies, isolated from my family and deeply depressed. I still clung heavily to the past, to the life that I had when everything was great, before everything came crumbling down. Unable to fully accept this new situation that I found myself in. Which in a way makes sense as to why I was so into conspiracies, since the core theme within that world is that I am a victim of forces outside of my control. Where if it wasn't for all of those external forces that lie outside of myself controlling me, then I would be able to be happy. Which is not to say that there isn't a lot of corruption outside of us in the world, because there absolutely is but it just shows why I became so attached to it at that point in time. As well as the feeling of seeking out new information and going on my own personal journey gave me a form of high that distracted me from the pain in my life and my past. Which is also what the weed was doing for me. It was a way for me to try and chase the high I felt in that relationship by using what means I had at my disposal, while also not putting myself at risk for feeling the same pain of loss again, which is why I never sought that high in another relationship. As well as that in my own experience, I had been with multiple girls in the past, and no one had been able to make me feel the way that Siobhan did, which further fed into the idea that she was the one and only, and strengthened my anxious attachment to her in the months that followed our breakup. But by the time that I had met Kiana, my conversations with Siobhan were limited, and I had been able to remove enough of my attachment from her to be able to feel open to engaging with someone else. Kiana was an amazing girl who offered me way more than I felt like I deserved, and helped me to put myself back together in a lot of ways. But even though I had built some separation, I still had a decent amount of attachment to the past, to the life that I used to have, and the girl who I'd waited for 10 months to see again. And now I found myself on the other side of the same situation that I had been through the year before. Finally, I meet and connect to someone, and now I'm the one moving away in three months. We decided to just enjoy the time we had together, and again, I don't regret it at all. I felt like I was much better suited to be able to handle the impending end after going through it already a year prior, which in some ways I was, but in others not. The pain was still present in me, and that caused me to act out more avoidant behaviors, keeping a level of distance from Kiana at all times. I knew acutely how painful it was to have loved and lost, and with another timer set on our relationship, I didn't have much of a desire to put myself through that again, as well as knowing that I had to prepare myself to move away to another province, 
So I always kept one foot in the relationship and one foot out of it to protect myself. But that made things more difficult for Kiana, even with me setting the end date as soon as we met. She didn't want things to end and wanted to try to make a long-distance relationship work and even flew out to Vancouver a couple months into me being there to come visit, which pushed her out of a secure state and more into an anxious form of attachment. But for me, now I felt what Siobhan did, being the one that moved away. I had this whole new life in front of me and I couldn't hold on to a relationship that wasn't going to work. We were both going to school in two different provinces, and looking into the future, all I saw was an inevitable end to our connection. Even though both sides of that dynamic are difficult, it's far easier being the one that moves away, as it was my choice to leave, and I was going into a novel experience that demanded my attention. Whereas when you are the one that stays behind, the loss of your partner leaves a hole in your everyday life. It's like if you were eating a sandwich, and then I put onto your sandwich a topping that you loved that made it taste dramatically better. And then I took that sandwich out of your hands, dug in there with my mitts, and took that topping back off. When you went back to eating that sandwich again, with every bite, you'd be reminded of how much better it tasted with that topping on it. The resulting sandwich was the original sandwich, but now it just tastes bland by comparison. And you also experience the pain of having the loss of control over your external environment, since it was not your preference to have the topping removed from said sandwich, but now you have to try and remove your attachment to the flavors that existed in your past and find new ways to enjoy your original sandwich, or go out into the world and search for a new topping to enhance your sandwich once more. I lived in Vancouver for a year and a half, and over the course of my time there, I hardly ever talked to girls. I only went on one date and kissed the same girl another night at a party. Otherwise, I went on a lot of online dates with all kinds of women at a place called Pornhub, and me and the ladies would share a romantic night together over a bottle of Jergens. But in real life, I closed myself off completely from girls. I had a few female friends at school, but that was my only exposure. I was insecure and fully on the side of avoidance, to the point of avoiding all intimate connections completely. I focused only on the negatives of romance, feeling that the pain of loss outweighed the bliss of love, that it was better to have never loved at all than to have loved and lost. Which is an understandable viewpoint when you refuse to move on and still hold on to all the repressed pain from the past. As then the pain is still in your present experience, and the moments of love and bliss only exist in distant memories. I still had some of the pain in my conscious mind, but after the time that had passed, most of it was buried into my subconscious, and buried even deeper due to my addiction to weed. As if you smoke to forget, it will work. But that is such a short-term solution that inspires addiction and only pushes the energy of pain deeper and deeper away from your conscious awareness. And it will sit and grow in your shadow till it gets to the point, as it did for me, where it built the foundation for how I viewed myself, relationships, and my life as a whole. Yet although my response was to run away from intimacy out of fear, that intimacy was the thing that I wanted most in my life. And if I'm honest, it kind of still is today. But fear and value increase in parallel with each other. The higher you value something, the more you fear not having it. 
which places an ungodly amount of pressure on yourself to try and get it, and then once you get it, to keep it, which is one of the core features of an anxious attachment style. If you are comfortable and secure in life, then you'll know you'll be fine on your own or in a relationship. Even if you do want a partner, you aren't desperate to get one. But as I spoke about last episode, if you are desperate to fill a perceived hole inside of yourself, you make yourself more vulnerable and hand over control and power to external forces. Chosen vulnerability is a strength, but desperate vulnerability is reckless and dangerous. So in the case of romance, you see your partner as this valuable entity, something that adds value to you in your life, which, as we've seen, they do. But if you do not value yourself, then you need them to be with you, to be able to feel that you have value as an individual. This unconsciously hands over control to your partner and leads you to becoming needy and anxious. Every time that they don't reply or give off an avoidant energy, your fear of losing them, and thus the fear of losing the value that you now have because of them, will cause your anxiety to spike. Your insecurity and fear has placed so much value on them that what should just be a relationship becomes a matter of extreme personal importance. What is now on the line is not just you having a partner, but the value and worth of yourself and your life as well as your ability to handle stress and be more happy and confident. And those stakes make it way more difficult to handle the situation of dating. This desperation and insecurity creates a hierarchical structure built on anxiety that places the fear of loss above the bliss of love. And it removes your empathy and compassion and places you more into an egoic state, which as I talked about last episode, can lead you to being manipulative or dishonest. These anxious behaviors don't take into account the needs and desires of your partner. For example, they could be distant one day, which causes you to start spiraling out of control with all these assumptions about how they no longer love you, to which you can start sending them mass texts or calling them repeatedly or just building this story in your head until you finally see each other and then you fucking explode. When all that it is, is that they're stressed about work or other personal issues in their life and the distance actually has nothing to do with you. But in that state of anxiety, you cannot empathize with them due to the self-centered focus of your attention on your fear, which will actually only push them away if they are secure, as then you become a black hole that pulls their energy away instead of being someone who can support them, where you desire the energy of the relationship to flow only to you. As an insecure person, you have not found a way to access the love within yourself, which would allow the energy to flow back and forth between you. And if this one-sided insecure dependency goes on long enough, you will drain them to a point where they cannot take it anymore and leave. Or, if they remain in the relationship, it will push them out of their secure center and more towards the insecure pole of avoidance damaging them while also further increasing your own anxiety and damaging you more. This form of anxious attachment is taking much more than it is reciprocating, as it is way too much to ask of another person to manage your life as well as their own. But conversely, if your partner is distant, is looking for the door and does not want to stay with you, then it will amplify your anxiety and cause you to do whatever you can to try to keep them around which betrays your own soul, as we do not deserve to be with people who do not wish to be with us. But if we are not valuing ourselves and see them as needed in our lives to be able to feel that we have worth, then we will allow them to hurt us continually, 
We will let them control our internal state and disrespect us, because then at least we aren't alone and still have a partner. Which means that we still have perceived value and the security and comfort of having a relationship, even if they are actually hurting us more than they are helping. It is a matter of knowing what you deserve in life. And if you do not value and love yourself, then likely you will not feel like you deserve as much as you truly do. And in that state, we will allow people to use us for validation or attention and to continually treat us like objects and not like human beings, which is always a toxic environment that we do not deserve because we all deserve love from ourselves and from others. This issue of self-love is something that I dealt with heavily for the years following Siobhan. I loved, I lost, and after her trip, she did not want to be with me. Instead of taking that as completely understandable based off the circumstances and empathizing with her, I took that as a sign that I must be unlovable. I was in so much pain that I cut off my empathy and compassion and instead adopted an egoic archetype of the victim. I didn't realize that the state of love she unlocked within me still existed whether or not she was a part of my life. So I turned into a black hole. And thus, I felt I needed external sources to try and fill this infinite emptiness I felt inside. But since I was avoiding relationships and intimacy to avoid that pain, I instead formed addictions to weed, video games, conspiracies, and porn. Even when I cut down on smoking weed while I was in school, that hole still existed. So I replaced that adult soother with another one in the form of junk food and overeating. Except all the external fixes I chose only made things worse. They would give me a cheap temporary feeling of synthetic love from the rush of dopamine and pleasure chemicals, but in their wake I would hit a deficit and feel worse than I did before, which would require me to reach for a new dopamine source and continue the cycle. A cycle of smoke a bowl, feel down, eat some chips, feel down, watch porn, feel down, oh yeah I have beer, feel down, smoke another bowl and play PS4, feel down and on and on, literally jumping from one dopamine hit to the next to try to keep myself from acknowledging and feeling the pain of that internal chasm. The main issue, as I've mentioned in the past, is that these spikes in pleasure chemicals do just enough to bring you back to kind of baseline, but do absolutely nothing for the core issue itself. As the core issue was a lack of love for myself, even if my main desire was for a romantic partner, at its core was the feeling of that love inside me that Siobhan had shown me. Which, although a lover makes it easier to activate that, I do not need another person to be able to do so. A partner can offer you a lot of love and support and camaraderie that you can't achieve alone, but I'm talking more about a love and respect for myself. One that radiates out from my heart when I connect to it. And I am the only person that can offer me that. In fact, that internal love for oneself is even needed to be able to truly love another person in a healthy way, as that aligns us to a centered and secured state, which allows for love to be transferred authentically to our partner and opens us up to be able to receive their love without craving it as a necessity. Over the course of my time in Vancouver, I did have moments where I would find slivers of love and respect for myself. However, the vast majority of my time was spent engaging with habits that actually made me lose respect and love for myself. Every time I gave into temptation, I would feel guilty afterwards. My conscience was telling me what to do, but I wouldn't listen. 
each seemingly minor choice I made throughout my day either showed me I was worthy of love or was a hopeless piece of garbage. We think that the trivial choices throughout our day are insignificant, but if looked at over the course of a year collected together, they are vital to our development as a person. So if that macro perspective is applied down to the micro dimension, then every choice we make is meaningful. That meaning is decided by us in our soul, and it calibrates the psychology of our conscience and intuition. And since mine has been influenced by tons of books and podcasts centered around self-help and growth, then anything I do that goes against that will be negatively enforced by my internal judge, the polarity of my conscience. I've noticed in my life whenever I sway away from the voice of my internal compass and act out behaviors that are not in alignment with my conscience, then that's when I lose that self-love, that self-respect, and thus my confidence. I move away from secure to insecure, which changes the way that I act around the people in my life. Usually in relationships and dating, if I really like someone, my insecure attachment is anxious. But I have had an avoidance style take over as the primary many times in my life, as it did with Kiana. When I moved back from Vancouver to Calgary, I started dating a girl named Maddie. She was this adorable punk chick who actually shared a lot of the same interests as me. We even had the same favorite hockey teams. But over the course of time that I was in Vancouver, since I had been so isolated from real women and consumed by the world of porn and Instagram models, when I went into that relationship, my main focus was to find someone who was nerdy yet edgy with tattoos. As in looking back, those were the models that I was most attracted to. I went into the relationship focused on the surface levels of attraction, as that's the only thing I was exposed to for the past year. When a person exists only on your phone or on a screen, you are only getting the visual representation of the image that they are presenting to you, which is maybe what, like maybe 5% of who they are? And this is a serious danger with the way our society is currently constructed. We are so consumed by screens that our primary mode of perception is our sight. Our technology is primarily attached to our vision, which changes the way that we interact with the real world beyond our screens, where then the selection of our partners is heavily dependent on their looks. So with Maddie, since she ticked off all of those boxes in the areas of focus for me, I was enthralled with the image of her that existed in my mind. We did get along great, and she was a kind and fun person, but we both came into each other's lives with lots of internal issues. We also came in with conflicting attachment styles, hers anxious and mine avoidant. And the relationship also became a way for us to engage in all of our destructive habits together. We partied all the time. I mean, in the height of it, I was getting blackout drunk like at least two times a week. And eventually this started to wear on me heavily. She had little to no interest in the self-help world that I was beginning to get really invested in, and thus our consciences were not aligned in their aims. I still had fun partying, but slowly over time my internal judge became more and more ruthless. Our dynamic was not a healthy one, and her habits were the same as all the habits that took me away from myself that my internal judge was judging me for acting out. I'm sure she still had a similar battle internally, but maybe not to the same degree. This internal battle led me to lose a lot of love and respect to myself, which I was not exactly running on a high supply of that to begin with. And since she was right there with me, it was easy to project that disrespect for myself onto her, since from a victim ego perspective, 
she could be blamed for keeping me acting out those negative behaviors, taking the weight of the responsibility off my shoulders. This led to a silent resentment of her that caused me to distance myself even more from her and continued to act out an avoidant attachment, which in turn triggered her anxious attachment even more and made her extremely needy, which for the most part pushed me away, but at times brought me back. I stayed with Herch for just over a year when the relationship should have ended after maybe a few months, but after being alone for so long, I was terrified of being alone again. I can see in looking back and knew it at the time that I was just using her for the comfort of partnership and the validation of being desired by someone, all the while resenting her as well as myself for being too afraid to leave and too afraid to take the responsibility for my life. I still maintain kindness for the most part with her, but if I was drunk then my shadow would bleed out in subtle remarks. I was completely living through my ego, severed off from my compassion and empathy which would have allowed me to see that she was also suffering and have love for her even if I still wanted out of the relationship. But to my credit, she was also looking to place the responsibility of her issues onto me and would break down and cry about her life to me, getting me to comfort her and then do nothing to actually change it in her own life, which pulled me to constantly put out her fires, at least as much as I was able to, and took my focus away from my own internal issues or on the deeper issues of both of us, and instead placed it onto her momentary emotional distress. Which from my side was a way for me to put off my responsibilities even more, and deem that no, I can't deal with my own shit because I have to deal with this girl's stuff constantly. And on her end, it was a form of a twisted helpless baby syndrome, where one weaponizes guilt to manipulate others into staying with them. And she even took it to the extreme multiple times over the course of that year. Anytime I would begin to distance myself and think about breaking up with her, she would come to me and mention how depressed she was getting, and how she was beginning to have suicidal thoughts again, and how she really didn't want to go on suicide watch. Which was literally something one of my friends warned me about her before we started dating that I kind of brushed off, not knowing how heavy it can be to actually be in that situation. But it is such a fucked up thing to do to someone, as what do you do in a situation like that with someone that you do still care for? As if you leave them and they kill themselves, then that would leave a scar on you for a long time. But also you don't want to be with them anymore, so you are trapped between a rock and a crazy chick. I don't think she ever would have done it, and I don't think she ever truly meant it when she said it, but at the time I didn't know that for sure, and each time she did it, she would subtly manipulate and control me, and I would get drawn back into the relationship out of feelings of guilt. Since I was so insecure at the time, I would just keep coming back time and time again. Things would spark, we'd reconnect, have a bunch of fun, a few weeks later I would get distant and avoidant again, causing her to get anxious and the cycle would continue. This is an example of one of the extreme dangers of an anxious attachment style, where the desperation becomes so high that all empathy for how this action may affect your partner is disregarded, placing you fully into your ego and activating the psychopathic potential in us that I spoke about last episode using the victim archetype as a way to control the perceptions and actions of another person who cares about you. While at the time, I was acting out a less extreme but still damaging behavior through avoidance that shows signs of psychopathic tendencies. Which may be those psychopathic tendencies I spoke about in the last episode that exist within each of our egos could be called egopathic. 
And what I was doing that was egopathic was the manipulation of giving her just enough attention to keep her giving me love and validation, and then cutting her off again and being distant when it became too much or when I just wasn't feeling it anymore. All the while just waiting for something better to come into my life so I could jump ship and not have to be alone. The old destructive you'll do for now because currently you're the only option I have at the moment type maneuver. Which is just fucked. All that does is just string people along and fuck heavily with their mind and heart. It may not be as acutely twisted as using suicide to keep someone with you, but it is still pretty savage. And if you were avoidant in this way with an anxious partner, your indecision or fear of being alone when dragged out will only further exacerbate the neediness of our partner, and likely damage them further past the relationship. As if they are desperate for your attention, they are openly offering themselves up to be controlled by you. And if you are the more distant person within that relationship, you tend to hold all the power. And as we've seen, our dependency on our partners, healthy or not, regulates our emotions and stress. So by walking this line of indecision and distance, we will have a negative impact on the internal state of our partner, which will only lead to pain and emotional scars. And from the side of the anxious, they naively place their heart in the hands of someone who will not properly take care of it. This of course being in relationships where both parties lie on the insecure extremes and not within a secure center. As if you are secure, then you can just leave and know that you'll be fine, or be willing to stand up for yourself and use honest communication to try and work through the deeper layers of the issues to help your partner find that balance internally. But if neither of you are secure, then there will always be a shifting of power within the dynamic. Unless, of course, one member is a pushover and the other an aggressively controlling person, who decides for their partner how they are able to live their life. In the relationship with Maddie, though, the power did shift between us, but since I had one foot out the door for a lot of our time together, I was usually in control of the dynamic. And in classic karmic faction, my next year-long relationship three years later saw the roles reversed, almost as if to say, alright big boy, let's see how you like it being on the other side. I met Felicia while working at a bar in Calgary called Local. She was a part of the daytime kitchen staff, and I worked nights at the bar, so I didn't see her very often. But every time I did, I was awestruck. If love at first sight is a thing, then this was the closest I think I've ever been to it. I was around a lot of attractive women at that time as I worked at a bar downtown, as well as an EDM nightclub a few blocks away, and usually I felt fairly confident and calm when talking to them. But any time I tried to talk to Felicia, I would get super nervous and just spew out half-thought-out sentences or just get too scared and run away. But eventually, about five months later, I was at a concert at the club I worked at with a bunch of my friends when I saw her walk in. It was perfect timing for me, as I had the combination of being with a lot of my friends, at a bar where I knew everyone, listening to the dubstep that feeds my soul with a couple of finger dips of M in me, and daddy was fucking dialed. I ended up spending most of the night with her and her friend dancing and having fun together. And since I had her on Facebook already, I reached out to her the next day and we planned a dinner date for that week. Sparks flew the whole time we sat together and I straight up have never fallen in love with someone that fast and neither had she. The next two months were amazing and we saw each other all the time. In the past I had had times where another person activated that same feeling of love inside me like Siobhan did. 
but it was never as strong or never lasted until I met Felice. During that time, I felt completely secure within the relationship, but after a while, an anxiety started to appear. I had not felt that much love in seven years, and I began to remember how painful it was to lose it. But I kept my anxiety mostly to myself and tried not to place any of it onto her. However, I would still get wrapped up in overthinking when she wouldn't reply for an extended period of time while at work. I'd begin to spiral and think that she was being distant, only to then get to her apartment and have all of that melt away. Showing the power of our minds to create issues out of nothing that stress us out for no reason. As I mentioned in the past episodes, about two and a half months into our relationship, her mother died tragically due to the side effects of a new treatment that they were trying down in the States. And since we started dating two days before the COVID shutdown, this all happened without her or her brothers being able to go and visit her, which understandably rocked her. I have lost two grandparents so far, but have the rest of my family around still, so my ability to empathize was limited. However, over the next year, I got to see what the trauma of losing a parent does to someone. Although she may have loved me as I did her, and I think that she really did, losing her most important connection in life made her incapable of building a relationship with me. As having a dependency on someone and then losing them would make it very hard for you to be able to seek a healthy dependence on anyone else. However, this was not something that she vocalized to me, and we ended up staying together for another 10 months and lived with each other for 6 of those 10. Which, I could say that moving in with her that quickly could have been viewed as a bad idea, but I still don't view it that way for myself. I was so in love that I was fully prepared for that, but she wasn't. And unfortunately for me, she was too afraid to ever mention that. The pain in her created by this sudden loss of a loved one caused her to separate herself from me emotionally, and she moved fully into an avoidant attachment. And that immediate change in her entire relation to me caused me to fall fully into an anxious attachment. The closer I tried to get, the more she'd push away, and the more anxious I would get. This dance between an anxious and avoidant sucks to be on for both sides. I do think that some of the time she wanted me there and wanted my support, but also cut me off from being able to offer it. She had no desire or really a capacity to offer anything back to me, which I can understand, but it made the relationship completely one-sided. In looking back, she should have just been honest with me about her inner turmoil, yet she never was. She was afraid of being alone, but also didn't want to be with me anymore. Anytime I asked about how she was really doing, I was met with foggy answers, silence, or lies, with the very rare moment of open, honest communication, which would actually inspire a false hope in me that she was still capable of being in the relationship. As I mentioned, the toughest thing about being the anxious partner in this situation is that their avoidance only makes your anxiety worse, and your anxious desire for connection only pushes the avoidant further away. Even though all I wanted and asked for was the bare minimum to keep the relationship afloat, it came across to her as a revolting neediness. She couldn't understand how I could ask her for anything after what she'd been through, when literally all I wanted was for her to text me and say hi, or cuddle with me on the couch, instead of intentionally sitting down with a big gap between us. Since she was repressing so much and was too afraid to talk, all of those negative emotions eventually turned into a resentment of me as a person. 
not too dissimilar as what I did with Maddie. In the confines of her mind and ego, she created this fictional character of who I was. And by the end of the relationship, in a lot of ways, I was the bane of her existence. Yet, from my view, all I wanted was to help her. To get back the girl that I fell in love with during those first two months. It's quite the trip having that much love in life turn so quickly into so much pain. Like, literally, a ten minute span between the texts when she got the call about her mom. And all the pain in me was coming from external stimuli outside of my control. The one thing I did control was that I could have just walked away and broke up with her. And that thought definitely crossed my mind many times. But that was so difficult I couldn't pull myself to do it for a number of reasons. Mainly, I had so much love for her that all I wanted to do was help. But due to her silence, I never knew how. And I was honestly never really allowed to be a part of her healing. Especially when she began to believe that I was actually making a lot of her life worse. She was in a deep place of suffering, and I didn't really know how she was going to act about it. And I had to consider the thought that maybe she would want an end to her suffering. And I had to sit with that. The thought of what I could have done differently, like, or was I to blame for not being there for her? And also just the straight-up fear of losing someone that I loved with all my heart. I was terrified of losing her, holding on desperately to the memory of the times before it had all fallen apart. That attachment, that fearful ego desire for control in my life caused me to be very insecure and kept me in the relationship that was draining my soul. And it blinded me to the subtle resentment and manipulation that she was acting out every day. She knew how much I cared and how much I desired that connection, so she used that to string me along for months giving me just enough to make me think that she still loved me and then would intentionally cut herself off again. And in her mind, getting her revenge for whatever atrocity she had created in her mind to blame me for her current life circumstance. And as a result, my diet went to shit, all of my positive habits disappeared, and I was smoking weed or drinking almost every day. I had stopped controlling my own inner pain and let the fear take over pushing me to lean on all of my old destructive coping mechanisms and to try to work on helping her, which is a form of control. As I felt I needed her to be well again, for us to be well again, for me to be able to be well again, instead of doing the work on myself, as there is truly nothing I could have done for her with her continually pushing me away. If I had doubled down on my own growth, perhaps I would have seen that and had the courage to be able to ask the tough questions and recognize that it was over. But I was in pain, and felt completely overwhelmed by life. I had already lost Siobhan, and I didn't really want to go through that again, even though I was. And I was just choosing to ignore that reality, which triggered a lot of the old emotions that I had repressed from years before. In a situation like that, though, it's hard not to adopt the perspective that she just lost her mom. My issues compared to that are nothing. Because on one hand, yeah, that might be true, but just because someone may have it worse doesn't take away from your struggles. My pain was my pain. In a lot of ways, I just lost the only girl I ever wanted to marry. And I have a front row view to the intense suffering she's going through. Like, that's a lot to handle. And making comparisons like that is not fair. Sure, we can use that in regards to trivial matters, but when it comes to things that deeply affect us, it's a very dangerous perception to hold. One that discredits our suffering, which causes us to try and man up and repress the emotions we are feeling. 
putting on a facade of strength designed to cover up the pain instead of processing it. And that is not strength. That is weakness. True strength is allowing yourself to feel those emotions and then talking with others or writing about them to be able to better understand them, which allows us to see where we are truly hurt and where we are just playing the victim, to see where there is real pain or where there is imagined pain. Then we can take the appropriate actions to be able to overcome our fears and have our moment of suffering help us to grow into better versions of ourselves instead of scar us for life which requires us to gain awareness and control over our internal state instead of seeking to only control our outer reality. For example, if I had done the difficult work on my own internal chaos, I could have gotten the strength to leave the relationship. I would gain more control of my external situation by taking me out of a negative environment, but the initial control was over my own fear and ego, moving me from an anxious attachment to a secure one. Whereas without that initial internal focus, I instead focused mainly on her, trying to help fix her so that I could have my relationship back, because I felt that I needed the relationship to be able to be in love. Just as I did with Shiv, I thought I needed her to love me, to have a connection to that wellspring of love within myself. But I had that with me the whole time. I just had so many blockages internally keeping me cut off from it. I even thought about this multiple times along the way and told myself I would leave or would do the work on my own life so I could be a better support to her by being a more secure version of myself. But I continually fell back into my old habits of trying to help her and thus ceasing to help myself, which led me to again try to fill that internal void with immediate dopamine hits. And the rush of those pleasure chemicals I got from the addictions satiated my pain just enough to keep me somewhat okay. But as I mentioned earlier, not only does that do nothing to cure the real issues, it also leads to a further repression of them, and left me vulnerable to that addiction. This constant avoidance of negative emotion through external sources is the core of addiction. Dr. Gabor Mate, a leading expert on addiction who works heavily in the downtown east side of Vancouver, mentions how this running away from pain and negative emotions lies at the foundations of almost all of his clients' addictions. Yet, as he puts it to them, are those negative emotions or necessary emotions? And is that discomfort and pain you are feeling trying to tell you something? In the wake of our eventual breakup, I finally started to take control of my life and my mind. I started working out heavily and restricting my calories to lose all the weight I had gained from burying my emotions in barbecue chips and beer. But although this was fueled in part by a love for myself and a desire for a better future, it was also heavily fueled by my pain, fear, and rage. I never wanted to be treated like that again, to allow myself to be manipulated and disrespected, and I never again wanted to feel that much pain. And this is the tricky part about processing negative emotions, because you are going to have multiple answers come up from your psyche in the process. My ego was still extremely active, as well as my soul, and I was being bombarded by different thoughts that fueled my motivations at that time. As much as I wanted to do it all out of love for myself, I also fell back into that same belief that I was unlovable, as here I was, dumped by the person I loved most, still blaming myself for a lot that went on in the relationship. But compared to years before when I avoided intimacy, this time I wanted to be loved by someone again which meant, in my delusion, that I had to change who I was. The version of me that I had been was clearly not worthy or else I wouldn't be alone again. 
which is not true. Yet I feel like I didn't accept fully that this was truly how part of me felt. I focused instead only on the ideas I wanted to believe, that I was doing this all for the right reasons and only listening to my heart, which allowed my ego to work through me from my shadow. I felt that by thinking I was doing it for myself, then that would be the motivation. But that was an extremely naive perspective to hold. I wanted to be positive, so I only focused on the positive, and thus adopted a willful ignorance to the darker sides of my personality and its motivations. This positivity mindset is important and can be effective, but I have found in my own life that it is only positive if you accept and do the work on the shadow elements of yourself as well. Otherwise, we are prone to a new age naivety that leaves us vulnerable to the polarity that exists within all of us. So although I was losing weight and gaining a lot more confidence in myself because I was doing things out of my comfort zone and pushing myself in a way that I hadn't before, I was also addictively weighing myself and obsessing about my stomach fat, not out of love for myself, but a form of resentment of myself. An egoic self-created delusion that told me that to be loved by someone else, I couldn't have any fat on my stomach, which is an insecurity I have had my entire life, although I can't pinpoint any specific place where it would have came from. Perhaps a blend of family, friends, or, or overall materialistic image-based culture. But in the state of pain I was in, that repressed fear was activated. And as I mentioned in episode 4, I developed a form of anorexia that caused me to obsessively lose weight. I sit comfortably right now at about 190 pounds. But even as I passed 160 and into the 150s, I still viewed myself as being almost there. Almost worthy of love. If only I lost a little more fat, then I would be able to be accepted by someone else and thus be able to accept myself. I was eventually able to get out of it, but living within that insecure mental framework took a toll on me. About five months after the breakup, about one week after I had realized what I was doing to myself and started to eat more than a thousand calories a day, I met a girl named Paige at a bar in Calgary. We connected pretty quickly and ended up sleeping together that night, which was tight. But something happened that night that really caught my attention, even in the moment. She kept telling me how attractive I was, and how much she was into me. She kept giving me compliments and continually giving me affection. And my internal response was not one of thanks, or of acceptance, or even an egoic inflation. I remember being legitimately shocked. After such a long time of having no female affection, no compliments, or really any basic pleasantries for that matter, I was actually caught off guard by the fact that a girl would think that of me which is still pretty sad for me to think about, even though it was really not that long ago. But her saying those things actually helped me a lot. It showed me that my thoughts and my view of myself wasn't right, that this kind of form of self-hatred actually wasn't true. And on her side, she mentioned how she had never been with someone where she felt they actually cared about her, where most of her sexual interactions were all just about the guy getting off, not sharing intimacy and passion between each other which was something that I was able to offer to her. We were brought together by lust and physical attraction, but then spent the whole next day together talking deeply about our lives and our paths, with both of us being brought to tears at moments. She had lost a sister a year before and was still processing it, and since I had just been close to someone who had lost a family member, I feel like I was synchronistically aligned to be able to hold space for her and show empathy, while also seeing that although we connected, that our paths were not pointed in the same direction. 
both of us knowing that she would not have the emotional ability to hold up her half of a relationship. It's wild how someone can come into your life so abruptly, and have their own intention for doing so, yet play such a synchronistic part in your story. And that night, and for about a week or so afterwards, we offered that to each other. We all have simple and insignificant interactions in our day-to-day -day lives, but occasionally we cross paths with another individual who we connect to immediately, who offers something to us that we need for our development, or to which we have something important to offer. You could form a mental outlook that searched for this in all of life's moments, but I am sure we have all had certain friendships or momentary connections that just felt different right from the start, that create within us almost a feeling of deja vu or a connection to fate. And at least for me, those moments usually come right when I least expect it. I moved back out to Vancouver last January, and had made the decision to do so during the same acid trip that brought my body dysmorphia to light back in August the year before. At the time I made the decision, which was still in the wake of the breakup with Felicia, I had felt very isolated and alone. I still had my family and some friends around, but was disconnected from my environment. I just became aware that the life I was living didn't belong to me anymore, and I needed a change. In the months prior to my move, I had made the decision to avoid all intimate connections, to avoid having to engage with the same dance of meeting someone right before I left. But of course, three weeks before I was moving, I met a girl named Sierra. We had known each other through a friend group but never really interacted, until we connected at a New Year's party and hit it off immediately. We spent most of that night together, and in the weeks that followed, we started seeing each other a lot. It started out with quite a bit of lust, but after a short period of time, we began to really develop feelings for each other. She was very different than any girl I'd been with before, and her hilarious and unique personality was extremely refreshing and fun to be around. She also had a very open and honest perspective on sexuality that I had never been exposed to which dramatically healed a lot of the insecurities and damage that I had repressed from years of addiction to pornography and an isolation from intimacy, as well as helping heal the same wounds Paige had, that negative self-image that I had reinforced in my mind during and after my time with Felicia, that I was unlovable and deeply flawed. Just as Paige did, Sierra came into my life and unintentionally helped me heal a lot of the traumas that I had been carrying with me by doing nothing more than being a kind-hearted and open human being, and I think I was able to offer her some healing as well in return. However, we also had to face the reality of your situation, the one I was originally seeking to avoid, that our time was limited. It's kind of wild to me just how many times this has happened to me, unintentionally entering into a relationship with a predetermined end. And there's been times in the past where I wanted it to, to end to save me the pain, and times where they chose to end it when I still wanted to go on. But with Sierra, we both felt that it should end, but we couldn't bring ourselves to do it. And over the course of our open, long-distance experiment, we fluctuated in our attachments. There would be times where I was more avoidant while she was more anxious and engaged, and as well as times where we swapped roles, and times where we were both engaging together from a secure place. It was interesting to see just how often it changed, and again I noticed that whoever was more distant and avoidant controlled the dynamics of the relationship, and whoever was more invested usually displayed more anxious styles of attachment. However, although we were in a situation that neither of us wanted, the dynamic did stay positive. Even though most of our communications over the course of our dance together was done over a phone, I still saw a full spectrum of the various interactions of attachment styles acted out by both of us.
which shows the variability within us for how we cope with our life circumstances, as well as, and more importantly, how we cope with the dialogue that exists between our conscious awareness and the various elements of our psyche, and how our reactions to our internal and external stimuli shape the behaviors that we act out within the context of our relationships. Those internal reactions manifest in our minds as theoretical stories that aim to predict the meaning of the given situation we find ourselves in. And those continual narratives that run within our minds then in turn shape our perceptions of every situation that we encounter. These thoughts can be a reactionary result from our stirred emotions, and they can also be the spoon that does the very stirring. When we interact with our external environment, we filter it through the frame of our subjective experience, and this framework can be distorted or altered by one external or internal event that then changes the way in which we perceive a different and otherwise unrelated interaction. And in our closest relationships, our partners are the ones who stand to have the most alterations in the way that we interact with them due largely to the amount of exposure that they have in our everyday lives, as well as the stronger-than-usual emotional connections that we have to them. This is especially noticeable when we have a turbulent past of failed relationships, as we then bring all of those old narratives into each of our new connections, whether we like it or not, and it makes us more susceptible to these variations in our moods and momentary perspectives. If those memories carry with them a stronger negative emotion, then our ego will activate an attempt to protect ourselves from experiencing that same pain again in this new relationship. And thus the fear will cause most of our thoughts to be coming from our ego. And every time we allow one of those ego-driven thoughts a place within our mind, it triggers the corresponding emotions of separateness and selfishness. And those thoughts and emotions construct the framework that filters objective reality which in turn influences our actions and thus the way we relate to our partner. I saw this multiple times in how I became insecure in either an anxious or an avoidant style when trying to protect myself from the pain of heartbreak, usually leaning towards anxious when I was invested and my fear was of losing her, and avoidant when I wasn't as invested and my fear was of being hurt by them. But I even saw shifts in how I interacted with the same external situation. Like with Maddie and Felicia, depending on which thoughts I entertained each day, I would go from feeling secure and being committed to helping them and weathering the storm, to the next day feeling avoidant, seeing that my connection to them was hurting me and I'd be much better off alone. Then at other times, I would fall into a fear-based framework that was terrified of being alone, anxiously needing their attention and the comfort the relationship provided. And all of this was going on while the situation itself hadn't actually changed. All that changed were the thoughts that I allowed to take over me. And since I was stuck in indecision in both of those relationships, the paralysis by analysis caused my mind to bounce between every possible perspective repeatedly. The unfortunate part is that all of this could have been handled by me pushing through my fears and actually having honest conversations with them. Even though I did speak up numerous times with Felicia, I never asked her the questions that held the answers I feared most. Like, do you even want to be with me anymore? I knew the answer was no, and that was terrifying and heartbreaking, so I avoided it. And instead took all of that pent-up energy and transferred it into perpetual overthinking and self-sabotaging behaviors. I thought myself in circles, accepting every viable option except for the one that I didn't want to look at. And meanwhile, she was doing the same thing. Each of us constantly trying to predict the behaviors of the characters of each other that we created in our own minds. Although we lived with each other, we, in a lot of ways, really didn't. 
because we couldn't see past our own delusional and false filters and allow ourselves to interact with the real human being right in front of us. Whereas before I moved to Vancouver, Sierra and I had set a standard of honesty right from the beginning. Even if it took us a week to say what we needed to, we made an effort to push past that fear and speak openly to each other. So even though we were long distance, the honest communication between us limited the amount of projection in our dynamic. And thus we actually dealt with the real versions of each other over our phones a lot more than Felicia and I did while we were actually living with each other. In the time since I've been single and experimenting with the world of dating, I've been able to apply a lot of this to every new connection I explore, seeing my partners through a lens of attachment, which often acts as a doorway into the deeper levels of their personality. So far in my journey, I've seen a solid blend of anxious and avoidant styles, with unfortunately very few people I would describe as secure, which makes sense for two reasons. Firstly, because in our modern world, there are so many different things that pull us away from ourselves. And we are constantly bombarded with posts, opinions, and ads, all telling us who and what we should be. This, plus our constant connectivity to each other, makes it difficult to remain centered and secure in our view of ourselves, and not be pulled around by the external forces vying for our energy and attention. And secondly, because in the world of dating, chances are that the secure people are already locked into committed relationships. Their balanced and secure outlook and behaviors allows for their current relationship to work efficiently, and that leaves most of the single members in the world of dating to be those with avoidant anxious attachment styles. Although there are much more avoidance in the dating pool than anxious, considering the anxious' deep desire for a relationship and the comfort and validation that it comes from it, and the avoidance continual rejection of intimacy, which has shown me that although I may still have tendencies to either of the extremes, my goal needs to be working on controlling my own internal state so that I can become more secure. That way I can be in a much better position to be able to identify the attachment styles of others and see which ones will work with my own. I know for myself that I cannot be with anyone who is avoidant, especially knowing that for me, when I was in avoidance, I was always half interested in the person or relationship, which makes me place that assumption onto my dates, an assumption, however, that at least in my own experience has usually been right. It's unfortunate because I have met a lot of great girls over the past year that I connected with a lot, but who were classic avoidance, and I really don't feel like putting myself through that again. So all of those flings ended as quickly as they started, as those types of people activate my anxious attachment if I genuinely like them, and I'm not just attracted to the validation that they offer me. And that activated anxiety throws off my inner equilibrium and causes me to focus primarily on trying to read their mixed messages. I notice if I go back in my journal to a time when I was seeing an avoidant, 99% of what was written in there is about them. Which takes me away from the podcast and all the other life-giving habits and activities in my life. Also with an avoidant, if I have to be the one that initiates everything, then I get bored extremely fast and any spark that was there for them fades away quickly. Likely because Felicia was avoidant and that relationship caused me so much pain. So when I see the same tendencies arise, I have a negativity bias that causes me to zero in on the perceived danger and forget about the positive elements of that person. Which is a core feature in avoidant psychology, seeing only the worm and not the apple, so to speak. And it is a perfect example of how those past thoughts and emotions build the framework for how we view the world moment to moment. 
Another example of this is how we can be in a relationship where we are in love, but our insecure attachments are also heavily activated. Then when we enter into a new relationship that activates those same insecure attachments, we mistake our anxiety or avoidance with love. I saw this with how Felicia's avoidance made me extremely anxious and obsessive about trying to read her behavior. And then last year, I met a couple of girls who I connected with a lot, but who were avoidant. And all of those anxious tendencies flared up, and I thought at times, am I acting this way because I'm in love with her? Yet all that it was, was an activation of my previous anxious attachment style. So if we do not have an awareness of our attachment tendencies and histories, we can be fooled by a new partner who has a similar style to someone we loved in the past, and begin to misinterpret our anxiety or avoidance for love causing us to, for example, further obsess about them. Or on the other end, if we meet someone who is actually a great secure fit for us, but who doesn't activate our usual attachment style, then we may be led to pass up on this great option, because as an anxious who's dealt with avoidance, this partner who is secure is not triggering an influx in those same emotions that we had active when we were dealing with the distance of our avoidant exes. This could also lead you to not trust your secure partner because you are so used to being lied to and manipulated that you assume that they must be hiding something, which will cause you to create issues out of thin air or view this new secure person as boring. In this situation, our anxiety pushes us to make new drama out of nothing and actually pushes away the very partner that we say that we want. Or on the other end, being an avoidant who has dealt with loving an overly anxious partner who then meets someone who is secure, they may view any desire for connection as a controlling attempt to take away their individuality, or as a repulsive neediness, as Felicia felt towards me. As even though I was anxious, I tried to keep that mostly to myself and only asked of her the bare minimum to actually keep the relationship alive. All of this has helped me dramatically to see that, for myself, I of course want a secure partner, but since the likelihood of meeting someone who is secure is very small, that the best course of action for myself is to try and become as secure as I can within myself, and then that way I could handle an anxious partner as long as they are aware of that in themselves and we can work with each other to mitigate our anxious tendencies. But even though I can't work with avoidance, that doesn't mean other people can't. Maybe you are someone who likes having that large amount of emotional space. Or you are into being the one that leads every convo, plans every date, and initiates every kiss and sexual activity. Or if you love the person enough, and you know that they love you too, then it could be worth it for you to force yourself to lead while you work with them to open up to you. But for me, knowing how my psyche operates, I go insane. My mental health suffers, and eventually my own avoidance kicks in and the relationship ends. As if you are an avoidant, and you find yourself with an avoidant partner, then maintaining a relationship between you is next to impossible, as there won't be any glue to hold the relationship together with both parties avoiding intimacy or fearing commitment. Whereas with an anxious partner, usually they aren't that bad, unless you are someone who really values their independence, then you may be annoyed by their desire for your attention. But even as someone who usually loves that attention, I have met some girls who were way too much to handle. I can think of one where we only went on one or two dates, and even though I was kinda into her, I saw way too many red flags and stopped talking to her as much. But then I got bombarded with Snapchats for months afterwards, usually without them actually saying anything I could engage with. They were just pictures, always using filters to hide her insecurity, sent with such frequency almost as a reminder to never forget me. 
which was unfortunate, honestly, because she was actually a really cool person and very attractive. But she was so anxious and insecure that she became insanely desperate for my attention. She hardly even knew me, but I imagine that the version of me in her head must have been an absolute dreamboat, and she'd be fantasizing about my beautiful manly bod and gigantic schlong when she sent me yet another snap, of which I would open as I sat on the toilet in a full sweat with the burritos I ate two days in a row flowing out of me with a fucking vengeance. A total contrast, yet again, to the image created in a person's mind. But for me, when I would have a bit of a stretch when I wasn't as secure mentally, I would finally reply to those snaps and use her validation as a way to pick my ego back up again, as it's pretty nice to be propped back up by someone who thinks way too highly of you. But it was just like eating junk food. It kind of felt good, but it also felt gross doing it. As when someone is giving you that much attention and control over their emotions, it is really difficult to not use that attention to feed your ego especially when you're not feeling like yourself and are being tossed around by depression or anxiety. That validation can be like a cold beer or a nice toke after a long day, providing you with temporary relief from your distress. But in the long run, it only hurts them as well as yourself as it feeds the egopathic perspective that they are just an object and no longer another conscious entity, one that is going through their own internal battle. And if you open up your empathy to see that they are just like you, you can see that the games you are playing with them are cruel in a lot of ways. But to go back to dating an anxious person, as long as the person you are with isn't too far to the extremes and still has some inner security and confidence, then the love that they can give you is immense. And for me, my proclivity towards affection and reassurances of love would soothe their anxiety, which usually doesn't take much effort at all. When I have been in an anxious style, like with Felicia, if she sent me a simple good morning text, I would be glowing for the rest of my day and no obsessive anxious thoughts would swarm me. Yet since those texts came in every 20 to 30 business days, I only had those obsessive thought spirals. But if you are with an anxious partner and you do express your love for them in those small to you but gigantic to them type gestures, then in return you will get a devoted and extremely affectionate partner. So if you are anxious, and so is your partner, equipped with the knowledge in this episode, you would be able to speak the same attachment language and help each other with your insecurities. The danger though with two anxious partners being together would be if you do not work to form some individuality and only lean on your partner. That would just promote both of your insecure dependencies. Instead of using the dependency to promote your own individuality, as has been proven in the dependency paradox I spoke about briefly at the beginning. As in a lot of ways, the core desire of an anxious style is a to essentially merge with your partner, to become a single cohesive unit. But if you are too focused on only the relationship, then you will slowly watch as all of your friends and other elements of your life drift away. I'm sure you've seen this in those couples who you really only see in their photos of each other on Instagram. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily a bad thing. Maybe if that is you and the relationship is all that matters to you, then fuck yeah. But personally, I don't resonate with that at all. I need my own space to be alone, to write, make music, play video games, or go solo to raves and vibe out. As well as having those days of getting absolutely juiced with the fellas. Crushing brews, sculling chips, and piping drives into the woods out on the golf course without feeling guilty for not bringing my girlfriend along. But I can only speak for myself, and your path is your own. 
Perhaps my story has lots of connections to yours, or maybe it doesn't. But my hope is that it at least gets you to think more about who you really are as an individual so that you can design the optimal relationship for you and your needs. In all of these episodes I've made so far, the constant message is to work on yourself, to take the time to understand your habits and emotions and psyche as a whole, at least as well as you can. So, for example, if you're someone who fantasizes about a certain kind of partner you'd like to be with, as I do, then you'd better start to seriously consider if that person would want to be with you. And either take that as a motivation to make those changes in your lifestyle so that you can be the best partner you can be to them, or as a realization that you are deifying this imagined lover and creating an unrealistic godlike person in your mind, like I did, which was a side effect of my own lack of self-love. And if they exist in a fantasy, chances are they're pretty perfect. But that is an imagined perfect partner that chances are you will never meet. Because at the end of the day, everyone poops. We all have those positive and negative elements of our personalities, and if you're too focused on finding perfection, then you will likely spend your whole life alone, passing up on many great potential partners, wondering why you can't find anyone who meets your impossible expectations. But if you come from a secure place that knows no one is perfect, then you will be able to see both the attractive elements of your dates as well as the parts of them that turn you off and make a decision of if you can look past their shortcomings and find a way to work with their attachment style to be able to create a loving relationship with them. Or if the negatives outweigh the positives, then you can stop your pursuit before it starts and may still gain a solid friend out of it before getting your emotions mixed up with them and causing the relationship to crumble completely when you eventually break up, which is something I have unfortunately had happen a lot in my life. But for those of you who are already in a relationship, then as you begin to understand these deeper elements of yourself through rigorous self-reflection, you'll improve your ability to see the inner workings of your partner. You'll see the real reasons why they act certain ways, which can promote your empathy towards them and allow you to offer your help or support to them, such as seeing how your avoidance triggers their anxiety and offering little reminders of your feelings for them. Or if it comes to it, this new understanding could allow you to see that this person is just not right for you, and that it's time to make the difficult choice of walking away. But that is going to have to be something that you look at on your own, as every one of us has our own situation, our own attachment styles, and our own desires for a relationship. So although I can share my story to help shine a light on these styles of attachment, the work falls on each of us to apply it to our own situation and understand our own patterns, as well as the patterns of our dates, partners, or spouses. If you're interested in learning more about the topics of attachment, I highly recommend the book I mentioned at the beginning, Attached by Amir Levine and Rachel Heller, which is at all major bookstores, Amazon, as well as on Audible. But also I am very interested in the psychology behind relationships and will likely make another related episode at some point in the future, as I really enjoyed making this episode and I hope that it translated. I've never really done a full walkthrough of my relationship past in that thorough of a way before, and it really gave me a whole new perspective on things, as well as an extra appreciation for all those beautiful moments in each of the relationships. Even though I shared a lot more of the darker parts of my past relationships, there were still countless amazing times. But those positives weren't as informative for the topics discussed in the episode, and its primarily negative tone isn't indicative of the relationships as a whole. It's just so easy to focus on the negatives when looking back and lose sight for the reasons that we were brought together in the first place. And those positive memories are worth cherishing, even if the relationship ended in a painful way that scarred us. 
because then this positive yet balanced perspective can help us to work through the fears that would otherwise push us away from intimacy into avoidance, or that trigger us to cling to our anxious and obsessive fear of losing love again, and instead allow ourselves to open up and love someone else. As like I mentioned, and I hope all of you have felt in your life, there are not as many things that are as beautiful in this life as giving and receiving love with another human being. I wish you the best of luck in your romantic endeavors, you gorgeous mutants. Peril bien de todos, and much love.